you have a Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 5 to, in, in one sense, really end a sermon that we started last week to kick off our week of fasting and prayer. Uh, we looked at this concept of patience, that no matter what is going on in your life, uh, we are going to be called to be patient until the Lord returns. And we have lists of things we're waiting for. And there were lists of things that we prayed for. And there were things that we prayed through that were for this last week that God met us in. And then there were a bunch of things that the Lord heard our cry for and then gave us the gift of patience for. And so that's how we started the week of fasting and prayer with this picture of the farmer that waits for the precious fruit of the earth. We said in the same way, we are going to wait patiently for God and we are going to trust that during this week of fasting and prayer, he's going to meet us and we're still praying because he did not return last week. So we have things that he's still working out in our lives, in our church, in your families, in the call that he has for your life. And we're going to really continue that same theme, the theme of patiently waiting until he returns, with now looking at the exact opposite thesis of last week. Last week, it was all about waiting patiently. This week, it'll be a warning or a commandment against impatient waiting, which is grumbling. And so uh, in some ways, it's like, wow, we're going to end the week of fasting and prayer by saying don't grumble. But track with me, there is something that the Lord does in teaching us how to wait that he also teaches us how to be patient with one another. So let's just read where we left off uh, last week, and then we'll get right into the theme of waiting patiently means not grumbling. Uh, Therefore, verse 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Very quickly, remember why James is saying, therefore, wait. We've been looking at this entire letter to these believers scattered abroad through the lens of joyful trials. We, we've been calling this gospel on the ground because it's good news. The gospel on the ground means in your real life. And real life starts in the street, in the trial, in the challenge, in the tension, in the diagnosis, in the bill, in the mail, in the shifting job, in the shifting geopolitical nature of our world. This is the trial that we're in. And James says, when you go through trial, have joy. And from that simple command comes a, a, a series of domino of teachings. How do you have joy in trial? Well, one of them is to get wisdom so that you see what God sees. Then another way that you'll have a joyful trial is when you remember that the cause of your trial, God sees. And in the context of this, therefore, uh, the people that James is writing to have been scattered abroad. They've been persecuted. They're now living as the economic bottom of the rung because they're in new land and their new area and they've been dispersed. And so they're working for people who smell blood in the water and the sharks are now exploiting the people. And James spent a little section to say, anyone who's rich, who's taking advantage of the poor, it's not an anti-wealth message. It's a message to say, if you've got enough money to be powerful, you better use your power wisely because if you mess with God's people, he will avenge that. And so James says, therefore, to the church scattered abroad who are being oppressed, your wages are being held, your life is not smooth right now, but God hears so wait because he's on his way and he hears the cry of the, of the reaper. It's met his ears and he is going to respond accordingly. So he says, therefore, be patient, brethren, to those that are going through the trial because of oppression. He says, be, be patient. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth 
waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We had the picture of the agricultural design of God's creation, and he puts man into that design to say, you can plant and then you can wait, but you can't make the rain come. The early and the latter rain belong to God. So the way that we get food and the way that we get sustenance is to do our part and then trust God's design. And James will use that picture to say, and so it is, believers in God. You have been given a calling. You've been given a mission. You've been given a chapter or season of your life that you're living through. And all you can do is wait for God and trust God. And just like the farmer's waiting for rain, you now have to wait. And we, we cover all of that before we get to the key verse this morning, because in the waiting of the trial, there will be a temptation to not wait patiently. In this sanctuary right now are specific trials that every one of you brought to church or are waiting for you when you leave. And the, the one that keeps all of us on the same page is that we live in a fallen world and the last couple of years have been trial on the front page of all of our news feeds. And so we're all trying to figure out the strategy for trial and the strategy to follow God in the midst of waiting on him to work things out that he hasn't worked out yet. We're still praying for rumors of war to this day. And as we're waiting, what James is now going to say is, while you're waiting, don't grumble. Grumbling or complaining in some of your translations is the opposite of patience. It's the moment where your timeline is up according to your patience and what you were hoping everything would get worked out by. And now, James says, as you're waiting, verse 8, or verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is a passage of scripture that if we can receive it with humility, will be one of those ways that the book of James is continually taking the people of God and, and setting them apart, making them look different than the people who don't know God. In his day, it was James encouraging these believers to have joy in the midst of oppression. That was a radical message. And in our day, as we think through the, the circumstances of our world, there is a natural response that non-believers, non-spirit-filled people, non-followers of Jesus will have to the trials of our world, and it is complaining. It's, it's in all of us to go through the difficulties and to want to take the challenging trial and to, to put a face and a name to it and then point the finger at them. And maybe I'm the only one in this, but because I was reading this this week, my nature to grumble and complain was just being held in front of me like a mirror. In so many different ways, I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, I'm patiently waiting and it's especially holy because it's a week of prayer. And yet I realize that inside of me, I'm not very patient. And there's lots of things that happen throughout my day-to-day -day life that take my eyes off a patient trust in God that he's on his way to set all things right and looks at other things and said, but I can't really handle this in the meantime. I can give you an example just this week, a couple days ago, that maybe some of you can relate to because it's the, uh, it just wrapped up, but it was the state tournament for high school basketball. Didn't anybody check that out? Yeah, so maybe your teams won, maybe they didn't. But uh, I went to a game with, actually saw some, some, brothers and sisters from the church at the game. And the team I was rooting for 
did not win. And Sports 101, when that happens, it is time to complain. It is just, and so I was actually there with Tom Velasco, who teaches our midweek service on Wednesdays. And I just found him, and we started walking to the car together. And it was like, wow, can we just for a second talk about how horrible that ref was? (laughs) Because... And now I'm doing it with you guys. This feels good. The team we were rooting for would have won if it wasn't for those idiots that were refing the game. And if you are a ref, I'm actually using this as a bad example. So this is not a real condemnation against your heart to, to, to referee the game. But there's this thing where, like, me and Tom were both like, yeah, they blew it. They missed a couple. And I was like, you know what else? Honestly, if it wasn't for the refs and also... The coach had a horrible idea at the end. Like, what was he thinking? That was a horrible play. And he's like, yes, that's so right. That was a horrible, horrible play. And on down the line. And the other thing is the other team was just, they were not sportsmen at all. They were just so rude. And it's not that the better team won. It's that all of the things that that happened were someone else's fault. And if it hadn't been for them, we would have won. Now, that's just... That's just like common sports reactions. But now, let's get a little bit more real time. How does it feel sometimes to to just be around the church age that we live in? It's like, man, this has been a a rough couple years. And if it hadn't been for those crazy political leaders of ours, we'd all be doing a lot better right now. And so we just like choose the person you don't like and you'll find some people who would gladly listen to you complain about them. And we all have the person and the audience that we'd like to find. Or it's like the political leaders, or it's like, what were the pastors thinking? We had to close down and scatter. That was such a bad idea. I'm sorry that that happened. Um, or the other thing, it's like, man, during, during worship, this, this person's singing was like right in my ear, and I couldn't even hear, and this sermon went long, and the lights were too bright, and as we're leaving, it's like, wow, this place is bad. And James is like, okay, you might want to work on your patience just a little bit. Because what we're doing right now is an exercise in the finished product. We are waiting for the Lord to return. And as we wait, there are in every one of our lives, in every single church, in every job you'll ever have, in every country you'll ever live in, there will be people who make all sorts of mistakes that you have to pay for. Because we live in the world. And it's still not perfect. And it will exist in the church. And what James is saying is, as you're waiting, just because you're going through a trial does not mean that you start looking at one another and pointing blame to everyone. And as soon as you do that, there's also all of these other things downstream from grumbling and complaining that you're not even aware of that the word is full of warnings against. It's not simply just a little frustration that comes out and you complain. But there's a story that you're walking into with the perspective that you have about the trial and about how good God is in the midst of the trial that your complaining, your grumbling will reveal about your heart. And James says, if you get it wrong, you're actually, it's actually the worst scenario you can be in. You're already in a trial that is outside your control. You're already going through something in this world and in the circumstance of your life that is hard, that God is pressing on you to teach you something. And now you're going to add on top of that, now you're condemned. Because 
You can't handle every trial and everything that goes in your life. Your life will not be smooth. But what the Lord does not give allowance for is just because life gets hard doesn't mean you start, get to start selling the truth and giving up on people and not being a follower of Jesus in the middle of the trial. And your grumbling is the beginning of the pre-symptom of quitting on God and people. And to look at this, really, it's only one verse. James like smuggled this little warning against grumbling into us that will be condemned and we're doing it in, in the presence of the judge. And then he's going to give us what we'll look at next week, a whole example of people who endured patiently that were used by God so they stayed committed. And their yes is yes and their no is no. We'll look at that next week. But for this one verse, I think it would be helpful to hone in on a, on a story that the word gives us that is full of all of the warnings against grumbling in real time as it happens to God's people. So if you have your Bible or your phone, turn to Exodus chapter 16, because we're going to look at a story all about grumbling that lines up perfectly with James' warning. It's in Exodus chapter 16. We'll just read the first uh, little bit of it. But before we do, let me set it up. And just as a, as a, as a, as a tool to understand the Bible so often, the, the truth that the Bible gives you will be backed up by a story that the, is revealed in the Bible. And this is one of those times where the Bible just teaches the Bible. And this particular story is a really good story to just have in your mind for the journey that you're on with God. Because this is a story that gives real-time history of God's people, but it also gives an example of some of the ways that just human nature, we respond to the leadership of God in our lives. And it gives us something that we can see in the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, but it also gives us a picture that every one of us will see in our personal journey with God. Because in Exodus 16, we're picking up in the story of the children of God following the, the leadership of the Lord out of slavery. Remember that the, the people of God from our study in Genesis that we're going through on Wednesday uh, found themselves in Egypt because of a famine in the land. They had to go to Egypt to, to just survive and get food, that eventually turns into the Egyptians using their stay there as free labor. And they turn into slaves. And for 400 years, they're waiting for the promises of God to be real, which is that he's going to make them their own nation. He's going to have them set apart for his glory, a pre-runner to the people of God that we are now. But first, he has to intervene to redeem them. He has to set them free. And he raises up a leader named Moses. Moses grabs a sidekick named Aaron. And they come to set the people of God free, speaking on God's behalf to Pharaoh. With me so far. After nine plagues or nine judgments that God will bring against the Egyptians for holding his people, he brings the judgment of the Passover picture where he brings death to the firstborn in Egypt. In doing so, they free the Israelites parts the Red Sea so they can get across on dry land. He swallows the enemies whole. And in Exodus 16, we're picking up the story. They're now just walking towards the promised land. And that matters for our story because there is a picture in that that all of us relate to. God is redeeming his people now. And he's redeeming them from the slavery of not an oppressive country, but sin and addiction and a life that is not given to him and is totally dead in this world. And he comes and he sets us free by the power of his spirit. He gives us newness of life. And he says, I have promises for you. You're going to walk in them. And I have things prepared beforehand for you, for you to enjoy that are good works. Like he prepared the promised land for the nation of Israel with wells they didn't dig, vineyards they didn't plant, and houses they didn't build. But there's a wilderness in between. And that's worth 
pointing out, once again, something we looked at last week as well. We need patience as believers and a constant reminder that we're waiting until the Lord returns because there is no instant glorification in the kingdom. If some of you who accept Christ this morning and take communion with us at the end of this service, you are starting a journey with God where he has redeemed you and set you free and you're going to walk towards the promises and there's going to be a wilderness in between. And all of us have to walk through this. Jesus says, narrow is the way, difficult is the way to life and few find it. It comes with a cross. There is a whole wilderness of your life that exists between the time that you're saved and the time that you meet him face to face in eternity. And we walk with him as he daily provides for us to trust him on this side of the veil. And it requires patience. And it requires endurance. And it requires us to trust him for provision on earth that we don't always see. This is the story that we pick up on. And as we pick up on this story, it's worth pointing out, maybe on the heels of fasting and prayer, maybe on the heels of you just desiring to see God move in your life unto salvation or to set you free from a particular uh, version of slavery in your own life, it's worth remembering that great moments of worship wear off very quickly. Exodus 16 follows Exodus 15, just in the chapter breaks of the Bible. And in the last chapter, the whole nation is broken out in worship. It's the song of Moses. It's one of the first worship songs in the Bible. They are so blown away that God has redeemed them and that he crushed their enemy with a miracle of water overwhelming them. But it wears off in how long? It says in verse 1, And they journeyed from Elam, and the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt. It's about six weeks. It's been about a month and a half that they've been set free through the miracle power of God. Ten plagues, opening the Red Sea, journey with me towards the promised land, and about six weeks after they've seen the hand of God move in their life, the worship has worn off. And it is true in each one of our lives. The reason we have to hear a message about not grumbling is because every single one of us have a moment with God where it was a miracle to know him, where he revealed himself to you in ways that are undeniably him apart from anything you could have done on your own. And every one of the ways that God will provide for your life, show himself faithful and call you will have a shelf life of worship. We don't just get to praise God because of one thing that he did in our life for the rest of our lives. We're very fickle. We forget very easily. And the way that God provides is just one temporary provision until he provides fully when he returns. Until then, it's day by day by day. And we now get the setup. After six weeks of these miracles, they followed God. And what happens in verse 2? Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You circle the wilderness. God has got his whole generation of believers. We know who he is, and we can't wait for the upward call of heaven to which our sights are set. And now, until then, it's glory to glory to glory with a bunch of waiting on God like a wilderness season of your life. So you don't look at the wilderness and say, God, have you forsaken me? Have you abandoned me? Have you called me to a place and not been able to complete it? Nope, you're just not in heaven yet. And the tendency that we have to grumble is a tendency to be finding ourselves once again in the wilderness. And it says that 
the people of Israel, in verse 3, said to, themselves, or said to them, to Aaron and Moses, Would that we have, had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, I want to say a couple things before we move too quickly beyond this passage. One, some of you may hear this message and feel as though you're being asked to not voice concern when there's things to be concerned about in the kingdom. And of course, there always is. Because as we've already stated, uh, on this side of heaven, there are no perfect people, there are no perfect places, there are no perfect churches. And in, in the way that we are being cautioned against grumbling, we have to also make sure that we're not saying there's not room for holy exhortation. There's certainly time and space where we need to, in a sense, make godly complaints for things that need to be edified or built up. And when things happen around here that need to be built up or tweaked or moved or with people in our church, this is not a message to say, if you're complaining, you're just being anti-biblical, so grit your teeth and never mention anything. Uh, I welcome exhortation, admonition, and good positive feedback. And I say all of that so we know what we're talking about this morning is not constructive, this is the exaggerated worry and anxiety that isn't really rooted in solving a problem. It's just rooted in focusing on a problem. And make that distinction very clear because there is some really good care and love that comes to noticing a problem and wanting to help. And then there is grumbling and complaining that notices something and exaggerates it to the point where it could never be solved. That's what we're talking about this morning, and they do it in two ways. And I wonder if maybe this will speak to some of us in these extremes, because the first extreme is a glorification of the past. The past is totally glorified in our grumbling. In the worry of the children of Israel, what do they say? We are so bothered, annoyed, grumbling, complaining to be in the wilderness because, man, we had it good in slavery. <laughs> When, when we were slaves, you know, yeah, the, the forced labor wasn't great. And, you know, the abuse and the power plays were not good. But we would sit by, by plates of meat, and that was great. And we really loved that. And there's a tendency in our grumbling to be so annoyed or frustrated that we glorify something and elevate it to a position that it never really was in. And that's what they're doing. Man, we miss being slaves. We would rather be slaves with meat than free, waiting and being dependent on God. And of course, there's times that we fall into this very same trap. You know, we, can, we can use the, the easy, low-hanging fruit, the example of the trial of the last two years, and think how many times in the last two years you've heard or thought or, or said, man, I just want to go back to how it was. As if 2019 was this, the pinnacle of humanity where we had solved all problems and we'd figured out everything. And if only we hadn't had this darn pandemic, we could have got back to the renaissance of 2019. Well, I don't have the best memory, but I do remember some things. And I was a pastor in 2019. And I can tell you, it was hard. It was still challenging. Uh, in 2019, I did funerals. In 2019, I walked people through divorce. 
In 2019, we had to deal with internal drama and struggling. And in 2019, you had your own list of things that this pandemic did not fully make go away. They were there. And for us to think, man, everything was going great until this happened. This thing that happened would have just solved everything if it was gone. You're glorifying the past. You're putting it in a position that it was never in. And we can do it with relationships. We can do it with the, the old experiences of places we used to live or jobs we used to have. And they were hard when we were going through them. But as soon as we find ourselves in a new wilderness because God's calling us to do a new thing, we automatically say, God, I know I complained a lot back there, but it's actually better than this. The other extreme is not to glorify the past, but to terrify the future. And that's another way that complaining and grumbling is not rooted in constructive criticism and truth to, to solve something, but is rooted in paralyzing the situation to have no movement. Because not only are they saying it was better when we were slaves, they also believe that God led them this whole way so that they would die of hunger. And all this business about future promises and the land that he's going to give them and the nation that will be set apart for the oracles of God to be delivered to the, to the whole world and to bless the nations, all of that must be rubbish now because they're definitely going to die. And how many of us have felt that in the last couple of years? It's like not only was it way better before all this happened, all of the dreams and the hopes for the future that I have are now crushed by everything that's happened, and now I just don't see how any of this could be good. And I have no idea. It's like, who knows if church is even going to survive? We, we, may just, we might as well just take it to the underground now because this is only a matter of time before this whole experiment just fails. And same goes with my kids, and college is crazy now, and their school is crazy now, and I have no idea how we're ever going to move forward in anything. Now you've just made the whole future terrified. And you're living in the extremes. Grumbling doesn't solve a problem. It just emphasizes these little ways that God wants to move to the point where you've removed God and you've removed all hope. And God gives us these things so that we can really understand what we really believe about him. Because look what he says. Look what he says his design is in the wilderness for his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And notice this, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. The Lord responds by Opening up the, the answer book just a little bit. Here's the design. In the wilderness, in the portion of your life between salvation and heaven, it says that the, the Lord said, I will make it rain food from heaven. So here is the overlay and some of the pictures that James gave us. Remember, James says the farmer has to wait for the rain. Can't make it rain on his own. And now we look at the children of Israel going through their own wilderness experience and asked to trust and wait on God. And the Lord says, I will make it rain. I will make food fall from the sky in a miraculous way. And I'll do it every single day. That every day they will have to gather and every day I will test them to see if they obey me. 
And now we start to get some answers into the design of God for the wilderness seasons of our life. Why won't God just give us everything now? Why isn't it just instant? Why did God choose a family that he had to miraculously bring a son into because they couldn't do it on their own? Why did God choose a nation not because they were mighty, but because they were weak? Why did God wait 400 years and 40 years in a desert? And why did God send them into these areas that he would have to conquer the giants in the the land? I want to see if my people actually trust me. Now, why is God asking you to wait on him? Because every single day, God wants you to trust him. God wants to rain blessings into your life in the power of his word, in the joy of his presence, in the communion of the saints around you. And he doesn't want you to store up the fellowship and the wisdom and the knowledge so that you never have to approach him again. And he doesn't want you to be so good at church that you never have to come back. And you guys are all graduate level church people and you don't need this anymore. God says, I do it in this design so that I can see if they trust me and obey. And the ultimate test of that, and we get that test as we consider what worship unto the Lord is for our lives. He said on the sixth day, have them grab double. Have them grab double so that they would know I will provide enough for them on the seventh day, even if they do nothing. Even if they don't do anything at all. On the seventh day, I'll give them so much that they can trust on me the whole day. And isn't it true? It's like, yeah, you see the farmer, at least he's planting and then he's waiting. But in our lives, the Lord will give you things to do, to pray, to seek him, to know his word, to trust him, to take steps of faith. But he also calls you to trust him apart from anything you do, that you would do nothing and he would still be good enough for you to trust him without complaining and without wondering and without giving up on the plot. And the other thing that this tells us about grumbling and complaining is one of the dangers that's built into it. Grumbling and complaining is a precursor to just quitting. Quitting on people, quitting on the call, quitting on what God has done to redeem you from slavery and bring you to the promise. And what happens when they get to the wilderness? Let's go back. Should we really even be here? Should we really even go to church anymore? Do I really need this person in their life? It may seem like a small complaint that you drop in the complaint box of your mind, but what it's a precursor to is Not trusting that God has brought this person to your life for a reason. And you're now saying, I wonder if I should even continue. I wonder if we should even stay together. And the Lord is saying in all of these things, the question of the wilderness is, do you trust me? The question of the person in your life that you could easily point to the finger of and say, it's their fault. The ref, the coach, the players. And God is saying, do you trust me? Do you trust that I am bigger than the thing that you want to grumble and complain about? He goes on, or the story goes on, verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all of the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you will grumble against us? He says, remember how you got out of the land of Egypt. It was the Lord. And the Lord opened up miraculous power to get them freed, to keep them safe in the Red Sea. And now day by day, he's feeding them so that the people of God could remember how they got here. Remember that God redeemed them. Remember that it was God's power through the staff of Moses that did the miracles. Remember that it was God who crushed the enemy. 
And the point being is in our grumbling and complaining, we've become so focused on the thing we don't like, we forgot about the power of the thing that we love. I went to winter camp and I got just one session in, but it was the one I had to hear. I see some people there were at winter camp. If you took something else, you probably did because you were there longer than me. But the session that I heard was the very end. And it's important to remind high school age students as they come to seek the Lord in a retreat setting of this simple truth. But it's important for us to remember too because we find ourselves in these moments where we question God. And the session was the pastor from San Mateo, Calvary, he's meeting with our youth and, and they're at the last day and some people have accepted the Lord and some people are being revived and refreshed. It's like, it's a youth camp. It's a lot of excitement. He gives them this reminder because they're going to leave the camp and they're going to go to school. It's the wilderness. It's not camp. It's not the retreat with all the Christian friends. It's not five sessions of pastors and worship and all of the amazing things that revive us in the Lord. He says, remember this. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. God began a good work in you, but you're going to need this reminder. He's also going to complete it. And the wilderness is the area of your life when that becomes not just a theological idea, but it becomes a faith move. God redeemed you from Egypt, and it wasn't to starve you. God set you free from sin. He redeemed you from the life that you ran into the ground, from the purposeless direction you had for your life. He intervened, and he won you, and he brought you to a place where maybe you only see one day ahead, and it's not to kill you. He who began a good work in you will finish it. The other reason that I think Aaron and Moses are recalling who got them out of Egypt is he says, as they say to the children of Israel now, why are you complaining against us? We're just God's mouthpiece. Aaron and Moses, they're part of the story too. Moses didn't even really want to get involved. If you remember, he says, Lord, I don't speak good. And I got to take Aaron at least. Moses was on the run in the wilderness. He didn't, this wasn't his idea. It wasn't Moses' idea to, Get into the wilderness without any food for the whole journey. They're saying you're, you're directing this at the wrong person. And that's a good reminder for us when we complain and we grumble at who we're really directing this at. I think that's why James says the judge is standing at the door. He's listening to your judgments against each other. This week, somebody gave us cookies. I don't even know who, but we made the mistake of putting them too low in our pantry you know, once you make that mistake, it's like, dang, because now the kids know about them and they've got access. Luckily, I couldn't open them on their own. My little guy, Tommy, he's too weak to open plastic wrappers, which is my saving grace right now. But he kept bringing them to me, like, give me these. And I would say, no, you can't eat cookies. Like, that's not my design. That's just, I wish you could eat cookies all day. That would be great. But you would eventually just be like, not healthy if you did that. So I was like, no, you got to eat real food. And eventually he started looking at me. This is over and over. And he starts saying, you're so mean, Dad. <laughs> I'm like, but then he would go to my wife and say, Dad is so mean. He was like, this is what I want to say to him. Bro, don't grumble at me. <laughs> this is just the design. I'm just telling you how life works. And in the same way, it's like we grumble at people. Don't grumble at them. This is God's design. In fact, Moses and Aaron will go on to say, when the Lord gives you the evening meat to eat, and the morning to be full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So here is 
another way that we realize grumbling, complaining, having these pessimistic just moods that we can get in as the people of God. It's not simply that we're annoyed at people. We're ultimately annoyed, annoyed at the design of God. We, in, James will actually say in, the, in, a, in a similar way when he talks about how we use our tongue, that in, how can we in one sentence bless God and curse people who are made in his likeness? He says you can't do that. If you're blessing the artist but cursing the art, you've lost the plot. And in the same way, if you're grumbling against God's people or the leadership that is moving us towards the design of God, what we're really saying to God is, God, I'm not really sure that I like the story that you're writing in my life. Acts chapter 17, where Paul is talking to the Athens, it's really important to remember for us, he says that God appointed your boundaries and the placings of your dwellings, the time that you live so that you would grope for him, that you might find him. Which means a lot of the ways that we bump up against things that we don't necessarily like, like boundaries of our life, we are confined to where God's placed us in Boise, Idaho. And the, the places of our dwelling, and the time that we live, and the people that we live around. Paul says, all designed by God that we would grope for him, that we would try to make sense of our life in light of these things to know God. So what happens if we don't like our boundaries in the time of our dwelling? Man, I would have been way better in the 1800s. I think my preaching style would have just been better. I would have loved to have lived pre-telephone or cell phone and just had like real relationships. Or maybe it's like I would have done better 200 years from now. I'm not real good at this non-technological world we're in. I want to be a cyborg. But whatever way that you question the time frame you live in, and maybe it's more acutely like, really? A worldwide pandemic, rumors of war, school that I don't like, church era that seems strange to me. I don't like this timeline. Sorry, that's the one God put you in. You're grumbling against him, not the timeline. And now take it one step further. God is not a fool for the time, place, and people he's surrounded you with. And you have neighbors that you may grumble against. You have people in your own family that annoy you, and you grumble. You have people within this church, and you have pastor styles and personalities that are not going to hit all of you with smiles and whistles. But when you grumble, what you're saying is, I don't like the appointments of God. This person that is made in God's image, that has the hope of glory in them, is bothering me to the point where I wish that God was a better artist. You're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against God. And what does the Lord say? It says that Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. As soon as they spoke, as soon as, he, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I want to keep reading. It says in verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you're going to eat meat. In the morning, you'll be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And then they'll know? After they receive the manna from heaven, the provisions of God? What about redemption? What about miracles? What about dry land, Red Sea? What about the song of Moses and all the worship? They still don't know him. 
because he's still calling them to know him more. And how does God want to be known by his people? He says, when you see my provisions, you receive them and you eat and are filled, then you will know me. And the timing of this seems strange to me as I was studying this until this very moment of the story, because James is going to overlay this and say the exact same thing. You will know the Lord your God when he fills you, when he satisfies you. What does that tell us about grumbling? It's not enough to give anti-commandments. Don't grumble. Okay, well, people bother me. What do I do? Do I just grit my teeth? Don't complain. Well, there's a lot that I see that frustrates me. Every anti-commandment is only as good as what you replace it with. So when we say don't grumble, we're not saying go into neutral. We're saying delight, be satisfied, be filled. Have the joy of the presence of God that is so rich within you that the hunger pains that were at the, the, in the root bed of all of your grumbling will be satisfied and filled. In other words, be so in love with God. Be so satisfied in the provision of God, in the, in the relationship that you have with the God that you meet every single day, that what other people see as opportunities for grumbling or complaining or frustration, you see with the confidence of the God that will provide. And James overlays this when he says, look at the farmer. You have to read this slowly. He waits patiently for the precious fruit of the earth. See, we've become so numb to the way that we get sustenance from the world because we can get anything instant at any time of season that we think food really is a human invention. It's not. It's a miracle of God. To put a seed into the ground and wait for it to come out, Paul will liken to the resurrection because what you bury, something more glorious comes out. And every precious fruit that comes from the earth, there was a time where that was a gift and a miracle from God. Every good and perfect thing comes from the Father of lights. And in the same way that a farmer would wait patiently for that harvest to come up, and when he sees it, it's rejoicing and feasting, we are waiting for the fruit of God in our lives. We are not just trying to grit our teeth and not complain and get there dutifully. We are trying to get there delightfully. We, we come here this morning to be filled, not just with knowledge, but with the joy of his presence so that when we leave here and all of the things that would annoy us or bother us apart from Christ, in Christ, we are content and satisfied still. And we still have joy. And I, I say this without trying to sound like a prosperity, like everything's going to be okay preacher, but one of the keys to following Jesus and not complaining that you find in this simple call, they'll know I'm their God when they've eaten and they're full, is that God wants you to be joyful. In other words, you don't complain when you're in a good mood. <laughs> when you are satisfied in God and he changes your countenance from pessimistic to joyful, from downer to hopeful, to the news headlines coming at you and you're on defense, to I belong to the Lord and he's on his way, I'm on offense. When that's the case, your countenance doesn't allow for grumbling and complaining. 
And so the grand shift that has to happen for us to truly be lights in the dark is for us to be satisfied in God. There is a fork in the road that this message will take every single one of us on. Some of us will hear this and we'll, we'll hear it in our religious ears because so many things that we do can fall into just duty of religion. You come to church, you sing the songs, you help out, you give, and you don't complain. Okay, check, 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 check. Put it into religion and it isn't actually going to change your life. Because God doesn't redeem us just so we won't complain. He redeems us so that we would be new creations in Christ, fully on fire for the hope of eternity in our lives. And when people look at our lives, they say, give a defense of why you're so hopeful. The fork in the road begins to take life when you listen to this message as an invitation to love God. An invitation to trust him so much that he actually does daily give you sustenance for your soul. And when that happens, you're not hungry. You're no longer walking around thinking, I'm going to die of hunger, and the next person who talks to me is going to find out what it means to be hangry. (laughs) But instead, regardless of what happens, the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the God who is on his throne, the God who has set salvation into motion, who has conquered sin and death through the cross and shown us the power that he has to resurrect out of the grave, his son now sits on the right hand of the Father and he's coming again to be so satisfied in him that all of these details that we could so easily turn into grumbling, we look at and we say, God, we trust you. I don't know and I don't see it. But these people, this church, the the new believers that are still being matured, there's precious fruit that's coming. There's fruit that's going to come out of your life, believers in Christ. There's a a growth and a spiritual fruit that you are going to have on display for us to enjoy. There's fruit that's going to come out of this generation in the form of lost souls being sound, people being baptized and sanctified in the Lord. The fruit that we wait for is precious and it's good and it will satisfy our souls and the rest of these things will just be details. So today, we actually are going to practice this whole thing by holding communion in our hands. And I want you to think about it in this context. Because communion is our remembrance of how this whole gospel on the ground got started on the cross of the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his Son that we who violated his perfect love with our sin, he desired that we wouldn't perish. He didn't bring a charge against the elect but died so that they could be set free, be given newness of life. And he who did not spare his only son gave him up for us all, so how much more will he freely give us all things? That God gave us his son. And when we hold the elements in our hands, we realize, what am I complaining about? No greater love than to lay down your life for me. I receive it with joy. What am I complaining about now? You've given me life and life more abundant. You've given me a promise of eternity. You've given me a place in heaven. You've given me good works for me to walk in. You've given me a family of God to belong to. You've given me a church to serve. In a a time in this world that might be the last generation before Christ returns, what are we complaining about? Let us be satisfied in him and trust 
that we're going to wait until he returns.